I want to share with you a story that kind of made a big impression uh, on my heart this summer. And usually in the summer, I have a lot of time just to be able to um, study scripture because I'm not teaching and uh, meditate on it. And I spend a lot of time working in the garden, working in the yard, running and, and that kind of stuff. And I get to think about stuff a lot more than I do usually during the year. Um, so there was a, a passage that was on my heart a lot this summer, uh, Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2, and a uh, passage there that Paul's, where Paul's just talking about humility and that kind of stuff, which was really impressing me. But there was a story that I'd come across, and this has been out there, and I'm sure you've heard of it as well, but it involves a church up north. Um, and let me just say this. Um, it involves Mar- uh, Mars Hill up in Seattle, and I have always just been um, so blessed by uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll and his ministry. Uh, it's been a blessing to me over the years. I have a high regard for the man. Um, but that being said, uh, none of us are perfect, I guess. And um, back in 2011, uh, he and his wife co-wrote a book called Real Marriage. And you know, I think the goal of the book was to just show how to build a Jesus-centered marriage and I think they wanted to impact as many people as they possibly could um, in this effort. And so what they did is they, they came up with a strategy. And um, the strategy was this. They decided without consulting the church or even really talking to the leadership. And again, the details are still kind of sketchy, but apparently the pastor made this decision along with a few elders. And they contracted with a group called uh, RSI, Result. Source Incorporated to, to run what they call a stealth campaign. And the goal was this, that uh, they wanted to get the book as it came out to go to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Because the thinking was this, if our book goes to the top of the list, then lots of people will see it and lots of people who wouldn't normally read it will read it and they'll be exposed to the gospel and exposed to what the Bible has to say about marriage. And that sounds great, right? I mean, that sounds like a great thing. Um, but unfortunately, the strategy went something like this, uh, as far as we can tell with the details. RSI uh, hired 600 people, and in one week, they went out and bought up about 11,000 books. And this was enough to get that book up to the top of the bestseller list. And uh, in the process, they spent, the church spent $25,000 to hire RSI and another $216,000 of church money to buy the books. In other words, they spent about $240,000, but they didn't tell the church. So the pastor and some of the leaders decided to do this. They didn't tell the church. They didn't tell the other leaders. They spent nearly a quarter of a million dollars to get this book up to the top of the bestseller list, which it did, but of course it was all a huge deception. When it all began to come out, the leadership put out a statement, and this is what they said. Whether we're talking about technology, music, marketing, or whatever, we want to tell lots of people about Jesus by every means available. And it's always been one of the things that I love about Pastor Mark is he loves Jesus, he loves the gospel, and he's been so faithful in getting it out. But I have to say this, that sometimes, you know, every means available apparently for him includes deception and manipulation and dishonesty. And the reason I tell you that is because it really impressed me as as a pastor. That sometimes as leaders in the church, we can be tempted to stop following Jesus and start trying to lead him. Which is essentially what happened here. 
instead of consulting with God, consulting with Scripture, and following Jesus, they decided to make a decision apart from Scripture, apart from the Holy Spirit, and to become the leaders, right? They're going to make the decisions and become the leaders. And one of the things I pulled out of this this summer, just in my own reflective time, is this. That church leaders, if nothing else, should be lead followers. The leaders in our church should be lead followers. They should be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost. It's not enough just to want to honor God. We need to do it God's way. And I say that because this isn't just, because <laughs> this plays out all the time in churches. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of, of looking on the internet and hearing on the news about leaders in churches who at some point decided to stop following Jesus and in some way they decided to lead. And I don't know about you, but I found it never goes well. When you decide that you're going to tell Jesus how to do church, it never goes well. And I say that because it really relates to all of us. I think we all do this from time to time where there are places in our life where we decide, I don't want to follow Jesus right now. I want to lead. And we can do that in our relationships. Like I know that to follow Jesus on my marriage means I would do this, but I don't want to do that. So I think I'll lead in a different direction. Sometimes we do it with our money. Sometimes we do it with our words. And, but here's the irony. See, a Christian, if nothing else, is one who believes that Jesus is Lord. A Christian is one who believes that Jesus came that he came from the Father, from eternity past, that Jesus came, that he lived a righteous life, that he died in our place, that he rose from the grave, and that he saves. That's what we believe as Christians, and Jesus is our leader. But sometimes, I, sometimes we don't quite live like that, do we? I mean, in the church, Jesus should lead and we should follow, and that's how it works. Not, not I lead, and Jesus follows me, not, well, Jesus is my genie and I just tell him what I want, right? He's just up in heaven. He's got nothing better to do than to wait around for us, to tell him what our agenda is, what our will is, and then he'll do that for us. Jesus isn't like a life coach who comes down and sits next to you, puts his arm around and says, well, what do you want to do with your life? And, and what do you want to be when you grow up? And what do you want me to do for you? See, what Scripture teaches us, and this is our big idea for this morning, this is so, so basic to Christianity. We talk about this all the time. But to know Jesus is to follow Jesus. It's just that simple. To know him is to follow him. Unfortunately, oftentimes we act as if there's another option. Like, I know Jesus, but I'd like to reserve the right to follow him depending on the situation and what his, you know, plan is and what my options are and what I'd rather do. And in other words, sometimes as Christians, we want to know Jesus, but we don't really want to follow him because that would just be too hard. Now, the last time that we were together back in August, uh, Mike was teaching us uh, and we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000 with a Lunchable. And that was a really cool story. And now today we're going to kind of pick it up and we're going to pick up in the Gospel of Luke with a question that Jesus poses to the disciples and poses to us today as well. And the question is this, who is he? Who is Jesus Christ? It's such an obvious question, but sometimes in the church it's almost as if we forgot who he is. So in verse 18, we pick up the story. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private, 
and his disciples are with him. So first of all, just as a side note, um, notice that Jesus is praying in private. And what we're beginning to notice in Luke is that um, there's a pattern. Every pivotal event in Jesus' life, every single one, is preceded by prayer. Before his temptation, there's, there's 40 days of, of fasting and prayer. At his baptism, he's praying. Before he chooses the 12, he prays. Before the transfiguration, that's next week, he prays. Before his arrest and his crucifixion, what's he doing? He's praying. And here, he's praying. Which is, by the way, just like something to think about. If you've got anything pivotal going on in your life, anything big, you might be like, well, I, you know, I don't know that I do. Well, you don't know. Prayer is just a good idea, just something to think about. So anyways, that's, that's a freebie on the side. So once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them a question. He said, who do the crowd say I am? Now we know that by this point, the average Jew thinks Jesus is pretty awesome, right? They're, they're like, he's an unparalleled teacher. They're, you know, the people are saying we've never heard anyone teach like this guy. He's so engaging He's so compelling. Just the compassion that is oozing out of this man. There's a, I mean, you know, sometimes we know people who are all about justice and then we know people who are all about compassion. Sometimes compassionate people, they're like, there's no justice and truth involved. And sometimes people are all about trust and and, um, truth and and justice and all that. They don't really have compassion. Jesus is this perfect combination of the two. People are like, we've never seen anything like this guy. He's healing the sick that no one can heal. He's giving sight to the blind that that no one could heal. He's driving out demons. He's raised a few people from the dead. That's pretty cool. That's awesome. He's feeding thousands of people at a time with sack lunches. He's turning water into wine at your wedding, you know. Um, He's an amazing guy. And so they reply, well, some say John the Baptist and, and others say Elijah and others still say that he's one of the prophets from long ago come back to life. So this is so intriguing to me. I, it's, it's difficult to understand. Some of them think he's John the Baptist. So you just have to think this through. Like, hmm, that's weird, right? Because you know that he and John the Baptist are about six months apart in age, right? And they both lived during the same time. Now John's been beheaded, right? He was kind of this quirky prophet who lived in the desert and ate bugs, right? And that was John. Now he's been beheaded. He's out of the scene. So I'm not quite sure how people think that Jesus is John since John hasn't been dead but months. But somehow there's this rumor going around like, we don't know somehow Jesus has become John or something like that. And then some people think he's Elijah who is really the, the prophet of, of the most esteemed, most admired prophet of the Jews. So some are like, yeah, we think he's Elijah come back. There was some prophecy about that. Um, some think, you know, well, what, just pick your favorite prophet. Like today, some people have, you know, life verses. Back then, I guess they had, they had their favorite prophets. And so, you know, whichever one you like, Malachi, whoever it is, um, that's who it is. So they think he's a great guy. Uh, a lot of people think he's a prophet, but there's no agreement. Now, there was a kind of a popular expectation in those days that maybe Jesus was God's appointed, appointed with a political agenda, and this, this comes out again and again, and we'll see this more as the gospel unfolds. A lot of the Jews thought that Jesus had, had, uh, had received an anointing from God with a political agenda in mind. That he would usher in God's messianic kingdom. That he would, that he would drive the Romans out of Judea. That he would usher in the earthly kingdom of God and restore Israel to prominence. And this is apparently um, kind of the common thinking of that day and what people are expecting of Jesus. 
And so it made me kind of think, like, I wonder what people think about Jesus today. Because, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm in the church. I'm a pastor. I know what I think. I know what most of you think. But I, I'm like, I wonder what people think. So I went to the repository of all truth. I went to the internet. And I just typed in, who is Jesus? So you should try it. It's really interesting. <laughs> you cannot believe the answers that uh, Siri will give you. But you're typing, you know, who is Jesus? And so here are some of the ones that I found, like, a prophet. Like, just like back then. There's still a lot of people today. In fact, followers of Islam believe that Jesus was a great prophet. In fact, many of them think he was the greatest prophet to ever live, but not God. Now, that's, that's crossing the line. Now, a lot of people think that Jesus is a way to God. You've probably heard this like I have. Like a lot of people say, oh, all roads lead to God. All religions lead to God. As long as you're sincere, you know, as long as you're a nice guy and you have a cat, God's going to let you into heaven, Right? Because that's your penance, that's how you got, right? So there's, and I hear that a lot, like, oh, all paths lead to God. So Jesus is a way, right? He's one of the ways. Of course, that ain't exactly what he said, right? But yeah, some people think that. Some think he, Jesus, the entire Bible is fiction. Some guy just had a lot of time to kill, so he wrote a really long book over thousands of years and put it together and it became the, you know, greatest book ever written, sold more than any other book. Some people think he was a great teacher, I don't know about you, I hear that a lot still. Um, you know, he taught some of the greatest morality stories that even people today still teach their kids. Even if they don't believe in Jesus, uh, they teach their kids about, you know, um, the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. Of course, the problem is good teachers don't claim to be God in the flesh. Like my wife's a teacher. My wife's a great teacher. She's never claimed to be God Thank goodness. Um, she's a great person, but, you know, great teachers don't claim to be God. Some think he was a political revolutionary, that, that, that that's why he came. And again, this was a common uh, thought of that day. And in fact, he really did. I mean, he changed the course of the Roman Empire. He changed the course of human civilization. But did he come as, a, as basically as a politician? Some think he was delusional. He was like, he was mad in the head. He thought he was God, right? Um, and yet, you think about the healing that he did, the teaching that he did, the miracles that he did. And then kind of just to lump it all together, there's a lot of people today who, for lack of a better term, they just think he's like a divine vending machine, right? And you, again, there are churches all over the world this morning, and, and the message that's being taught is, Jesus came down here as our heavenly vending machine, and if, you can, if you'll just figure out the formula and you pray the right formula, or you have enough faith, God has to give you whatever you ask for. In fact, what a lot of churches teach is, God's just up in heaven with nothing better to do. He's just waiting around for you to get it figured out. You buy the right book, you pay the right money, you go to the right conference, and you'll learn how to pray, and you'll ask God, and he'll have to give it to you. He's just a, he's just a vending machine. In verse 20, it says this, but then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? So, you know, we can, look, we can look on the internet and what do people think about Jesus? But the real question becomes, but what about you? What do you believe about Jesus? And Peter answered, and we'll see Peter who increasingly becomes the spokesperson for the disciples. He says, you're the Christ of God. Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And this is a good group to ask. They've been with him for nearly two and a half years now. They've been observing him studying him, listening to him, being mentored by him. And so Peter speaks up. He says, well, you're the Christ of God. 
Now, there's a lot in there. The word Christ we get from the Greek word Christos, which is a translation of a Hebrew word, Messiah, which means anointed one. So if you want to take it all the way back, what he's basically saying is, we believe that you have been anointed by God, that you have come from God, and that you've come for a purpose. The Old Testament taught, and all the Jews back then would have known this, that God would send an anointed deliverer. Someone who would deliver his people from their sin, who would give them salvation, who would establish the kingdom of God upon this earth, who would deliver them from the oppression of corrupt human governments and institutions. And Jesus truly was the greatest prophet to ever live, the greatest teacher to ever live, the most compassionate and just person to ever live, but he was more than all of that. And so you can go out in the world today and find a lot of people who say, oh, he was just, oh, he was good, oh, he's a great teacher, but that's not a Christian. A Christian is one who believes that Jesus Christ is God. And Peter's really saying more than he knows. In fact, Matthew kind of throws in a little uh, dialogue here that uh, Luke doesn't give us. It says that when Peter said this, Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man but by my Father in heaven. See, Peter's answer isn't the result of human logic. Peter didn't come to this answer because Jesus asked a question, so Peter got out a clipboard really quick and did it pros and cons, and Jesus said this and did this, and oh, I, you know, I did the equation, you must be, you must be God in the flesh. It says that this came from God. See, no one, no one comes to the conclusion that Jesus is God in their own thinking. Because the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Dead people don't figure this stuff out. Dead people don't ask to be saved. Dead people can't think. This is a work that God does in us. I was reminded, and maybe some of you can think of this in your own life, but, and I've shared this with you, but when I was a freshman in high school, there was a time where I had I'd never been to church I had never heard the gospel. I didn't know who Jesus was. And literally, there was a 24-hour period where I, I read a book that presented the gospel. And in 24 hours, what, the one day you could have asked me, who is Jesus? And I would tell you, I don't know. He's a religious guy. Uh, they have statues of him at the church down the street. And um, I don't know. People go and they do something. I don't even know. They worship him or something. 24 hours later, you could ask me, who is Jesus Christ? And I would have told you, he's the son of God. He's my Savior. He's Lord. And I look back sometimes and I think, how did I go in a 24-hour period from not knowing who Jesus was to knowing who he was? Here's the one thing I know didn't do it. It wasn't my great intellect. (laughs) Thank you for laughing. Uh, It was the Holy Spirit of God. No one confesses Jesus as Lord apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in them. And, And what's true for me is true for every one of us. If you can confess that Jesus is Lord, that is because God has done a work in your heart. So Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that every one of us, every one of us have to answer. And then Jesus says something really interesting, like unexpected for us today. And then he strictly charged them and commanded them to tell this to no one. So like after the resurrection and the Great Commission, we're told to take the good news to everyone everywhere, right? We talk about that all the time. Did you tell anyone about Jesus? Did you take it to your work? Did you take it to school? But at this point, it's not the time for that. So Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, you're the Christ. You know, you're the son of the living God. You're the anointed. And Jesus is like, yeah, shh. <laughs> you don't want to tell anyone right now because this isn't the time for that. The time will come. 
And then he says this, starting in verse 22. And here's what you need to understand. Um, when, I was, when I was putting the series together, and I was working on the sermons, what I noticed is this. Um, a, a lot of people, when they're teaching through Luke, when they get to verse 21, that usually is where they draw the line. And that's one sermon. And then verse 22 starts another sermon. So typically, what we're covering this morning is two sermons. And you probably wish it was two sermons, but it's not. It's going to be one sermon. We're going to cover it all this morning. And here's why. Because it goes together. All of this goes together. So Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, well, you're the Christ. Yes, that's right. And then he says this. Now, here's what you need to know about the Christ, about the Son of God. The Son of Man must, notice this, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So God's plan is that Jesus would come and live a righteous life and that he would suffer and that he would be crucified and, and for our sins and that he would raise from the dead on the third day. Now, I, we hear it and we all get it, right? So what I just said, like none of you were like, wait, wait, what? Jesus, Jesus died? <laughs> I mean, you're like, well, we already know the story. It already happened. Yeah, I, yeah. But it's, what's really funny is back then, no one could have imagined that this is God's plan. That's often lost on us. See, even though Jesus told them that he'd be crucified, the concept of the Messiah being crucified was so foreign to them that they just, he told them on multiple occasions it would happen. And yet, when he was crucified, they were disoriented and devastated. In fact, where were the disciples? They, they hid behind a locked door crying for their mommy, you know. They were, the doors locked and they were afraid that the, the leaders were going to come get them and they were confused. Wait, what do you mean Jesus is dead? How could this happen? How could Jesus be dead? Right? And we listen. Have you ever done it? Been like, what was wrong with them? Right? Like, how many times could he, did he tell them? And then on the third day, when he raises from the dead, none of them are expecting that. None of them got their lawn chairs and a, and a mocha and they were sit, sitting by the tomb waiting for it. Then, like, none of them, no one, no one expected that Jesus would raise from the dead, even though he told them again and again and again. It was so foreign to their thinking. But we know that we follow a man we follow a Savior whose path included rejection, included suffering, in, included crucifixion. And Jesus' response to Peter's confession wasn't like, oh, you know who I am. That's great. So have a nice life and I'll see you in heaven. In fact, what he says is, he says, then follow me. If you know me, then follow me. They go together. If you know me, you follow me. Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So Jesus is not describing a two-level Christianity. So I know that people have debated this, people have argued this, books have been written, um, churches have split, um, different theologies have evolved over this. And some people have actually suggested that there's kind of two levels of Christianity. There's level one where you know Jesus. And then if you're, you know, you had your Wheaties today and you feel like excelling, you can go to level two, which is where you follow him. But as I'm looking at the passage, it's all one story. It all fits together. I think what's happening here is Jesus is describing what it looks like to know him. 
Sometimes, and I, I, I don't know if you've ever found this, but I find a lot of times with people today, with Christians, there's this kind of vague, like, so how can you know that you're saved? Right? And I, sometimes people are like, well, you know, I don't know. I can know, and how can I know if she's saved? And I don't know. He did this and said this. Is he saved? And, I, and Jesus is like, you know, I'm, I'm not like just a savior that comes along and you believe in me and then I don't, you know, you're like, I don't know. Is he saved? Is he not saved? Jesus like, I'm the kind of savior that when I come, I come in power and I change you from the inside out. If I save you, man, you know you're saved. There's no question. How do you know you're saved? You follow me. You change directions. You start moving in a different direction. It's just another way of, you know, talking about the word repent because that's what it means, to change directions. Jesus says, what does it look like to know Jesus? You follow Jesus. He says, you must deny yourself. So what he, when you think about it, there's nothing new going on. In other words, following Jesus is exactly like knowing Jesus. How do you know Jesus? Well, it begins with self-denial, Right? How do you come to a relationship with Jesus? You deny yourself. You get off the throne of your life and you put Jesus on the throne of your life. So essentially, how do you get saved? You have to renounce self and become Christ-centered. All he's saying is, that's all following is. Following is exactly like knowing. You don't know Jesus until he's on the throne of your life. So just keep him there, right? I mean, when you think about it, you don't have to do anything new. Just don't take him off the throne. That word deny is sometimes translated as the word disown. It's a good way of thinking about it. Following Jesus is just disowning my rights, disowning my sinful desires, disowning my agenda for my relationships and time and body and money and stuff and all that. And then he says, and take up his cross, notice, daily. Take it up moment by moment. Now, his disciples didn't yet know that he would die on a cross. They hadn't, they hadn't gotten to that. So when he says, pick up your cross, like when we think about picking up a cross today, we think of Jesus carrying his cross and we think, I'm gonna carry my cross like Jesus. Now back then, they didn't know yet that he was gonna die on a cross. They would have just thought about crosses because crucifixion was very common in those days. It's how they, it's how they killed, it's how Rome dealt with Prisoners, they'd, uh, they'd been doing it, um, they learned it from the Persians who had been doing it for a couple hundred years and the Romans had really gotten it down and if you committed any kind of capital offense and they wanted to make an example of you, they would crucify you on a cross and oftentimes they would put you at the, at the, at the entrance to the town so everyone would see you and they'd put a little sign up saying this is what he did so you'd know you better not do that. And so when they thought of crosses, they just thought of instruments of death. You don't, like that's what people tried to stay away from. He said, pick up your cross. Now back then it was just, it was an instrument of death. Today, I'd, the cross has come to represent like any unpleasant circumstance. So like today it's so interesting to talk to people and read books and people talk about how, you know, they'll talk about their, their boss as their cross to carry, you know. Oh, my boss, he's such a jerk. It's like, it's the cross I carry in life. Um, you know, my car, have you seen my car? That's like the cross I carry. Um, my mother-in-law, um, I, I lost all my hair. Uh, I have a cat, you know. Sometimes people are like that. They're like, That's a, that, that, this is not the cross that Jesus is talking about. In the book Evangelicalism, The Coming Generation, James Hunter writes this. Self-focus is part of the modern evangelical identity. That evangelicals, he's basically talking about us. 
This is why increasing numbers of evangelical Christians care very little about the glory of God or reaching out to a lost world. For them, Christianity exists to enhance their lives, their marriages, their bank accounts, their prestige. But to bear a cross, to pay a price for standing for Jesus Christ, no thank you. See, the cross is a reminder that we have died to ourselves, that we've died to our agenda, and that sometimes following Jesus has consequences. Sometimes when we openly identify ourselves as a Christian in a hostile environment and we receive persecution for that, now that, that is carrying the cross. That's what he's talking about. When we declare that Jesus is God, when we talk about sin and call it what it is, when we talk about Jesus as the only way, when we talk about the Bible as the word of God, and when we are rejected for that, and when we are persecuted for that, and even when people are put to death for that, now that is carrying your cross. Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. Many Christians think it should be the opposite, that each one of us get to come up with our own kind of life goals and then get Jesus to sign on so that he'll give me what I want, the money, the comfort, the popularity, take away all the the tough stuff. I know I tell you this all the time, but it continues to be my prayer. Years ago, I used to pray. This is how I used to pray every day, and I've told you this, but I would get up in the morning and I would say, you know what, Father, today I pray that you would just bless my plans and be with me wherever I go. I used to pray that all the time. Father, just bless my plans and be with me wherever I go. And then one day I realized, you don't need to pray that prayer if you're following Jesus. When you're trying to lead him, that's what you have to pray. Well, God, I'm going to go somewhere and I'm not sure you're going to be there, so would you be there? And I gotta, I'm going to go do something and I'm not sure you're with me, so would you bless me? But here's the deal. If you're following Jesus, you don't have to pray for Jesus to bless you. If you're following Jesus, you don't have to pray for Jesus to be with you because you're following him. He's already there. He's already working. So I've come up with a really unique revolutionary prayer and you might write this down if you've never heard this before. This is awesome. Here's what I pray now. Ready? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Thy kingdom come. And your will be done. That's what he's talking about here. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Now for some, living for Jesus has cost them their life. In the last 2,000 years, we're told that actually Christians who have been martyred number in the millions For these disciples to follow Jesus, when Jesus says, follow me, what they could not yet understand is that for the 12 who were there, one of them, of course, would betray Jesus and and take his own life. The other 11 would have one join them and all of them except one would die a martyr's death. The 12th one who was John, they tried to kill, but he refused to die and he lived in old age, but they tried. They tried to martyr him. And many of them, in fact, would be crucified. Peter, of course, we know, was crucified upside down because he refused to denounce Christ. 
But for most of us, that's not our reality. That's not how we follow Christ. For most of us, losing our lives for Jesus doesn't happen in one grand act of, of courage. For most of us in this room, probably all of us in this room, it, it doesn't mean that one day, you know, somebody will put a gun to our head and say, denounce Jesus or I'm going to kill you. For most of us, it's just a daily thing. It's a daily act. It's a getting up every moment, moment by moment, every morning, putting Jesus on the throne again. First in my heart, first in my thoughts, first in my schedule, first in my decisions. That's what it means to lose your life. Notice, daily. Why daily? Somebody afterwards in the last service says, I've heard that verse a hundred times. I never caught on to the daily thing. Yeah. Right? Because we have to renew it every single day, don't we? Every day when we get up, the world is just telling you, you only, give, you only live once, so go for the gusto. It's all about you. Every day, daily. He goes on, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? Like imagine, he just says, Jesus says, imagine that in this life you got everything you ever wanted, everything. And at the end of your life as you're breathing your last, you're surrounded by everything you ever wanted and then you're dead and you're gone. And you stand before a God who you ignored, who you did not know. Would you say that it was worth it in that moment? And of course, we all know we would say, no, of course not. For whoever is ashamed of me, he says, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. He's just saying this. Logically, it's better to face rejection from those who don't ultimately matter than from the one who does. And how often have we been tempted, have we succumbed to the temptation to be quiet about Jesus because we're afraid of how someone will react or what our boss would do or what our parents would say or what our neighbor would say or what a friend would do. And so we keep it quiet because we're more afraid of the rejection of people who ultimately don't matter because your neighbor isn't going to be your judge when this life is over. It will be the Lord Jesus Christ. A little over a week ago, um, of course, many of us were very saddened by the news of what happened at Umpqua Community College. And uh, in the days that followed, there are a lot of stories out on the news there's one story in particular that I thought was interesting. Um, my family and I were out of town last weekend, and as the stories began to come out, there's one story that I read online in a couple places, never heard it on CNN, didn't hear it on the local news. I don't know, maybe it made it ultimately. But it was the story of Anastasia Boylan, who uh, was shot, uh, but she survived. In fact, she was shot. The bullet went down her spine. Um, she tells the story. She basically played dead. Uh, and... Someone else was shot and kind of fell on top of her. And so she just kind of, she stayed there. But she told her father in the hospital um, a couple of days later that basically what happened was the gunman walked in the room firing, killed the teacher. And as he was reloading, he had everyone kind of on the ground in the middle of the room. And then he began to call them up one by one. And she told the story. He'd have somebody stand up and he would say, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, he said, good, because you're a Christian, you're going to see your God in just about one second. And then he, sh he would shoot them in the head. Now she said if they said no, 
he would shoot them in the leg. And of course, as a Christian, you always think like, you know, what would I do if I was in that situation? But here's the part that really got me. So I was reading this on the internet on a news site. I think think it was actually Roseburg newspaper. And then if you've ever read on the internet, you know, if you keep going down, you can get to the part where people leave comments, right? So I went down to the comment section for some reason. I always find it kind of interesting. And basically, it was full of comments, and I boiled all the comments down to like this. Basically, what almost everyone said was this. If the guy was killing people who said they were Christians, why didn't the Christians just give a different answer? How stupid can a Christian be? And I think what we would say is, well, we don't know any other way. Because <laughs> to know Jesus, to know our Savior, to know our Creator, to know the one who died for us, the one who rose for us, the one who intercedes for us, the one who loves us, the one who, you know, the one who will welcome us into heaven. To know him is to follow him. It's to follow him. Every day, every interaction, every reaction. We know him and we follow him. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. And then we thought it might be good. Like, what would be a better song to close with than I have decided to follow Jesus, right? So I'm going to pray for us and the band's going to come up and we're going to close with the song. Let's pray together.